if you're able, please remain standing. We'll turn to Romans chapter 16. We'll read verses 1 through 16. And I shall try to pronounce correctly every name in these verses. When I get to heaven, I'll find out if I did. Beginning verse 1 of Romans 16. I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Sincrea, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ, who risk their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Greet my beloved Apennatus, who is the firstfruits of Achaia to Christ. Greet Mary, who labored much for us. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachys, my beloved. Greet Apellus, approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my countryman. Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphania and Tryphosa, who have labored in the Lord. Greet the beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother, and mine. Greet Asyncretus, Phlegon, Hermas, Patrobus, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. Greet Philologus, and Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank You for Your Holy Word, which is given by the inspiration of Your Spirit through Your servants of old. We pray now that as we read and hear the preaching of it, that You would help us to focus on it, convict us of our sins, of our shortcomings, our failures, encourage us in Christ, and help us by Your Spirit to do what You call us to do in it. And we pray these things in His name. Amen. You may be seated. So years ago, I heard a talk by a pastor who talked about going to uh, England and spending some time in the UK. He was an American pastor, still is around. It's Robert Godfrey, in case you're wondering. And he described how he went over there for a conference, spoke, he was able to preach uh, at various churches on the Lord's Day. And what he noticed about this one church in particular is that after the morning service, everyone dispersed immediately. They went home. They left. And uh, in a lot of our churches here in the States, what that means is there are problems in that church. Where's the fellowship? Maybe it's not a healthy church. Something is awry. Well, he inquired, and what he found out was that these people, they saw each other during the week. Their community was not as sprawled out as ours would be. 
And so they saw each other at the bakery, at the shops. They had coffee during the week. And so there wasn't much catching up to do on Sunday morning after the service. And I, re- I, I mentioned that because as we see here, uh, there's no doubt that greeting is an important part of the Christian life. Um, if you have ever noticed, our order of worship after the benediction, we have the postlude because that's what you do. You just play a uh, stanza or two from a song so everyone can, can break. And uh, then I have greet one another. And that's been in our order of worship uh, probably the whole time. Now, we don't always do that. Some people have to get out. They have somewhere to go. They have to cook a meal. Or perhaps there are issues. And so I just bring that to your attention as well. Because when we come to this uh, wonderful passage uh, within Paul's letter to the Christians at Rome, perhaps we're tempted to do what some, not us of course, what some might be tempted to do when you come to those genealogies in the Bible or the instructions for how the temple or the tabernacle was to be assembled in the Old Testament. You see it and you say, "Uh uh-oh, I'm going to go to sleep here, I'm just going to skip it. But if we do that and we don't understand what's going on, uh, then we miss a blessing. And uh, as we look at these greetings of the Apostle, I just want to ask the question, what is it that we can learn from his greetings to these believers in Rome? What do we learn from his example? So I've got about four. There's probably more, uh, but these are what I have this morning. Well, first of all, I think what we see here is that uh, we learn lessons about Christian leadership. The Apostle Paul, uh, some of you perhaps identify with him and his Christian walk. I've told some of you recently even that I identify more with Peter. Takes him a while to get it right. Dense-headed, all of that. Sorry, Peter, uh, but it's true. And um, he went on to be a great servant of the Lord. But Paul here, he, he is a gifted Gifted apostle and leader. And why do I say that? We, we see several things. I mean, think about all these names. Perhaps there are 26 people that he greets by name, most of whom he's never met. He's only heard about them through others. He didn't have a computer or a smartphone. But he remembered their names probably because uh, he, he had been praying for them. And... Uh, He's careful to call them by name. Now, if you're like me, sometimes you struggle with names, and we try to use different ways to remember people's names that really only make sense to our own minds, perhaps. But the point is, after a while, we get someone's name, and and we need to follow his model here. And I don't mean only at the church. Obviously, that is the case among the brothers and sisters in Christ to greet one another by name, but this can be an effective tool. If you're out at a restaurant to call your waitress, your waiter, by name, you see a cashier and they have a name tag, call him or her by his or her name. Another point of his leadership we see here is how affectionate he was to the brothers and sisters. He calls them that. To the sister, to my brother, in verse 9, he says, Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachys, my beloved. In verse 12, he says, my beloved. 
And so he uses these terms of endearment, these terms of affection to one another. Um, Some of us grew up in a Christian context, others did not. And those of us who have grown up in Christian homes, perhaps went to churches as children and growing up where the Christians in that um, organization, in that church, I should say, they called each other brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so. And I've seen this done as well among Reformed people, too. And there's a reason for that, because it's biblical. We're all adopted as Christians. We're adopted into the family of God, and that's who we are in Christ. We're His brother, His sister. We're children of the living God. And so, if someone calls you that, uh, fret not. They're showing affection. They're recognizing that you're a fellow brother or sister in Christ. And uh, words have meaning. And words are important. And so, at times, we should call each other brother, so-and-so, sister, so-and-so. But as a Christian leader, as an apostle in Christ's church, he's also careful to thank people publicly. To acknowledge their contribution to the kingdom of God. Now, we want to give all the glory to God, and sometimes we think, well, I I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't call out someone and give them thanks because all of the focus is going to be on them, right? So I'm not going to give glory to God. Well, that's that's not what the apostle did. He thought it important. In fact, it is important to acknowledge people's contributions to uh, any endeavor. And he is careful, though. Paul is always careful to give glory to God as he does this. Uh, elsewhere, uh, he, he does this in the Scriptures. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I think it is, he says, I thank my God always on your behalf that you come behind no gift waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, I've talked about this before. We need to be careful with our speech. Um, not to be bound and paralyzed by trying to be careful, but just to be more thoughtful in how we speak, to give glory to God, not to say, I'm so proud of you, so-and-so, I'm proud, I'm proud, I'm proud. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So how do we acknowledge someone? How can we say, I'm so thankful. Thank you. It's good. You should say thank you, but also I'm thankful to the Lord for what you've done. That's one way to do it. That's how Paul did it here He talks about their work in Christ. And so it could be that they did it to Christ. Or he could be saying they um, are doing it as Christians or that Christ is the one who has motivated them to do this work. So it goes back to the source, which gives God glory. The point is, he gives them thanksgiving. By the way, our own standards, when we, uh, in our confession of faith, in our larger catechism, it talks about the... Ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness. It talks about the things that are forbidden. It talks about things we should do. One of the things we should do, it says, is freely to acknowledge the gifts and graces of others. And so he gave thanksgiving for them publicly. And uh, if you serve in the church of Christ... You know what Jesus says. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Don't be a Pharisee. Don't have the trumpet players marching before you uh, so that when you do serve and when you do throw your alms into the offering, everyone looks at you and gives thanks and praise to you. That's not the way to do it. 
we do it to the Lord, right? Secretly. Yet, if there is a public aspect to it, and you are given thanksgiving, you are acknowledged, you know that goes a long way. And uh, be sure uh, to, to give acknowledgement when and where it is appropriate, and you can. And so Paul, he's also a gatherer. Um, he made friends in the churches. He was probably very outgoing. Not all of us are. Some are introverted. I know that. And the Lord deals with us who are introverted. I used to be so, so shy growing up. I moved around 50 times growing up. Not really, but it felt like it. And I was just, you know, my my dad's side is English. We're reserved, okay? But the Lord has dealt with me over the years to come out of that shell and realize, okay, it's not all about you, Kevin, and how you feel. You've got to reach out for the glory of God. I still struggle sometimes, but I do, thankfully. And so Paul sought to make friends in order to gather people into the kingdom. You can't witness, you can't give a testimony about the Lord's work in your life until you approach someone and open up and, yes, be vulnerable and be a little outgoing. And by the way, just something to think about. I learned this years ago. It's not always the best, but it helps. Form, F-O-R-M. If you don't know what to talk about, you can talk about the person's family. You can talk about their occupation. What do you do? Are you a student? You're still in school? You work and go to school? What do you do? Um, don't pry too much. If they're, you know, they're giving you signs and signals, hey, back off. I don't want to talk about that. Then go on to something else. You can talk about their religion. Quote religion. This is an evangelistic tool, by the way. Then you give them the message. Right? The gospel message. But if you're a church, you can talk about the sermon. Hey, what, did, what was he talking about? Can you help me? Or what did you think about that? Don't have pastor for lunch, but um, there, there's just a tool that you can use. If you're not so out, some of you have no problem, I know, talking. But he was a gatherer and uh, as, as a Christian leader. We aren't all called to be Christian leaders, um, but we are to lead others to the Lord in some way. We could find that in the Scriptures, no doubt. Acts chapter 8, as we've seen before. He also gives instruction. He not only um, gives commands, he tells them to receive Phoebe, their sister. Verse 2, he commends Phoebe to them. Why? Why does he commend her? Because, he says in verse 2, so that they may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and assist her. And he goes on, he, he tell, tells a little bit about what she's done. She's been very helpful to others, to himself. And so part of leadership is explaining things, communicating things. I know that. Do we fail? Yeah. But remember that. If you're leading your children, if you're leading a friend, if you're leading others, to be careful to use names, to be affectionate when appropriate, to give thanksgiving for their good that they contribute to a situation to be a gatherer and make friends and also give them instruction. And so, even on Sundays when we gather together for worship, make sure that you reach out to someone and uh, try to uh, use cross-pollination if you want to use it that way, put it that way. Not just the same person. If you want to start out with someone more familiar, do it. I mean, I know we do this, but sometimes we get in a rut. Sometimes we don't. So make sure you greet someone. If if you see a new person, befriend them. Reach out to them. 
Remember form if, if you're not so inclined to do that. Or use an, a, a device of your own. And so we learned that here, first of all, from his greetings, how he excelled in part as a leader, as an apostle of Jesus Christ. But we learn many things from these Christians as well, and that leads us to the second thing. Uh, the greetings and what Paul says about these Christians here uh, shows us that the early apostolic church, at least in Rome, was a diverse church. I use that word diverse intentionally and carefully. Just because something's abused doesn't mean I want to give it away. I'm not saying that uh, the early church tried to pack as many unbelievers on the bus that they could, that uh, it was full of LGBTQ plus people, no. But what I am saying is that for this church, at this place, at this time, there are all sorts of people there. Look at their gender. Those who served even, men and women. Look at the women. There's Phoebe in verse 1. There's Prisca or Priscilla in verse 2. There's Mary in verse 6. Junia in verse 7. Amplius uh, in verse 8. Some say that uh, Amplius was probably a slave. In verse 12, there's Tryphena, I guess is how you pronounce it. Tryphosa, they're possibly sisters. And then there is Rufus, uh, or the mother of Rufus in verse uh, 13. And Paul claims her as his own mother, meaning she was like a mother to him in the Lord. And by the way, um, some of you perhaps have known mothers in the Lord, fathers in the Lord, or have been that to others. That could be a ministry of yours if you're older. Um, and, and what a blessing that is, especially for those who are far away from their, their home. Uh, there have been those who have been that for Rachel and me uh, at times in the past, and we're thankful for, for them. And so you have all these women who are in this church, and then of course there's all the men, we see them, we know them. But then think about the ethnicity, um, the different ethnicities represented in this congregation. At Rome, there's Phoebe. She had a, a Gentile background. There's Andronicus and Junia, probably Jewish. Apellus, verse 10, who is probably Greek. Um, Epinatus, in verse 5, he was the first convert in Achaia, which is Asia. So I don't know exactly. We don't know exactly um, what ethnicity, but from Asia. And that's that's... Worthy just to pause right there and realize that the gospel by this time had reached Asia. Now, as we think about this and gender and all of this, we, we don't need to read into the text. That's called eisegesis. You read into it. There's exegesis. You draw out from the text. We want to do exegesis. Draw out from the text. We don't read into it and say, okay, what is true here must be true of every single congregation in every city at all times. No. That's not always going to be the case. You think about Rome and how because of industry, trade, um, its political center and so forth, all of these various ethnicities intersected. You know, they say all roads led to Rome. 
So there would have been many ethnicities here like there are in Atlanta and any other big city in our nation. But you know what? If you go to South Dakota, where one of my friends pastors, you can drive through the roads of South Dakota, and he's Dutch, by the way. He says, okay, you can tell by their yards who lives here. The Germans live right here. Oh, okay, now we're in the Dutch section. Now we're back in the German. He pastored a Reformed church, and a, a lot of German families migrated there years ago. So it's mainly German. And uh, so should he feel guilty because he doesn't have 50 ethnicities in his church? No, and neither should we. Now, at the same time, we should recognize what is happening here and re- rejoice in it. And what is that? Well, in Genesis 12, God promised Abraham that he would be a blessing to whom? The nations. Through Abraham, one would come, his seed would come, Jesus. And because of that, Abraham would be a blessing to the nations. The gospel of Christ would go to the nations. That's happening here. Jesus says, go in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all the nations. And so we rejoice in that. You see, Isaiah made this promise, or God through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 9 and verse 2, talking about the gospel and how it would go beyond the Jordan in Galilee, of the Gentiles. And it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them the light has shined. Just like you and me, these people were those who dwelt in darkness. They dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, but Christ came to them through His gospel. He saved them, called them out of darkness into His marvelous light. And so, yes, we agree, we say, we believe that racism, as we know it today, is wrong. That prejudging or despising someone because of the color of their skin, that's wrong. God's method and plan is to save individuals from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And we see that right here. And also, it's the cross. It's not CRT. It's not some humanistic Um, psychological program. It's the cross and the gospel of Jesus Christ that bridges the great divide between Jew and Gentile. And we see here that God again will save people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. So is this your perspective of the kingdom of God? I think we have many ethnicities represented here in our small but growing congregation. We're small but growing. Don't forget that. Um, And so we rejoice with what happened at Rome and what God is doing in the world. And then there's their social status. Um, There's Phoebe again. And if you look at um, verse 2, at the end it says, for indeed she has been a helper of many and myself also. That word helper, um, some see that and say she was a woman of means. It could be translated patron. Perhaps she had finances and so she helped to finance the kingdom. Or it could be that, uh, as he calls her earlier, she is a servant. That she served physically. And whatever she did, she was of great contribution to 
uh, the kingdom, but many again think that she was of higher social status. Now, some would say Phoebe is a deacon. She held the office of deacon. Therefore, we should have the office of deacon for females in the church today. Maybe you've heard that. Um, if you see there again in verse 1, it says she is a servant. The word servant is diakonos. It means, um, it's the feminine form of that, which means servant. It is the same word used in 1 Timothy 3, verse 8, where Paul talks about the qualifications for the office of deacon. But guess what? In Matthew 20, 26, Jesus expects all of his disciples to be servants. Not necessarily the office of servant. In Romans 13, remember, we saw that the civil magistrate in verse 4 is called a minister of God. It's called a deacon of God. So does that mean that all civil magistrates hold the office of deacon? No, we, we have to take words in their context. Remember that. And so we simply believe that Phoebe here is called a servant because that's what she did. She served the Lord and the church in Sincrea. And by the way, if you're still wondering about deacons, we also believe in our denomination as well as others that in Acts chapter 6, that is where the office of deacon originated because of a need, a physical need in the church. And so the apostles came together and said, here's what you're to do. Seek out from among yourselves, Acts 6, 3, seek out from among yourselves seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And so Phoebe came from Synecria, or rather Synchria, in Greece near Corinth. And some say she probably took this letter to Rome. Paul wrote it from Corinth, gave it to her, and she took it from Rome. There's Priscilla and Aquila. They were tent makers. They weren't that high in society. Andronicus and Junia. Uh, they were well known. They were in the inner circle of the apostles. There is in verse 10, Aristobulus. Um, some say he was the grandson of Herod the Great. There's Rufus. And in Mark 15, 21, it was uh, Rufus's father, Simeon, who helped to carry the cross of Christ. So there's all sorts of people here. Uh, maybe a few in high places, many in not so high places. And so remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. But he does call some who are mighty. He does call some who are noble. And so Paul elsewhere in Philippians 4.22 says those of Caesar's household greet you. And so it was diverse in that sense. Third, we see here that the church of Jesus Christ is a united group. There is unity. We talk about the peace and purity of the church today. And there is unity, no doubt. It's not perfect. We've seen that in Romans 14. Because when you have such a group to come together, there will be differences even culturally. There might be differences of opinion on what God says in His Word or how you apply it. But there's unity still. And in verse 17 of our passage, he says, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses. 
So it wasn't a perfect church. There is no perfect church. The only perfect church is the church triumphant, the church in heaven. They're the saints who have been made perfect, Hebrews 9 tells us. And yet, they are unified together in harmony because as Paul says throughout this passage, they are in Christ. They're united to Christ in the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as he even talks about being united to Christ in Romans 6. Because we're united to Christ, we're united to one another. And we share in the family of God. They were meeting together in people's homes. That's there in verse 5 as well. Notice the affections that Paul uses again in verse 9, verse 12. Beloved, chosen in verse 12. Again, he calls one his own mother. But look at verse 3, because this goes back to his leadership, uh, but also it shows that there was much work done and uh, how they were united in that work. Verse 3, Greek Priscilla and Aquila. My fellow workers in Christ Jesus. So he says, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Paul considered them on the same turf as himself, even though he was an apostle. Again, it's in verse 7 and verse 9. Now, at the end of the chapter, Paul does um, command them to do something. Not the end of the chapter, end of our section, verse 16. Commands them to do something. I tried to give Reed a holy kiss this morning. He, went, he wasn't going to have it. I'm just kidding, but I did mention it to him. Um, but it does say, greet one another with a holy kiss. And there is an um, expression of unity and affection among the people of God. And so after we're done today, we're going to line up right here. I'm just kidding again. <laughs> but he does say give a holy kiss. So what, what is going on? Well, this is uh, also prescribed by Peter in 1 Peter 5.14. He calls it a kiss of love. Um, are we to do that today? There is one Reformed writer you may know of, Murray. He at least alluded to the fact that he wished maybe this would happen today. Um, but he says it's holy to distinguish it from that which is erotic or sensual. It's a holy kiss practiced among the saints who are the holy ones. But when you read the scriptures, the New Testament, you'll find in Luke 7.45 that Jesus expected a holy kiss from Peter. And of course it was a kiss that signified the betrayal of Jesus by Judas in Luke twenty-two forty-eight, And there's that beautiful scene in Acts chapter 20 when Paul is saying goodbye to the elders at Ephesus, probably never to see them again this side of heaven. They're all weeping. They wept freely, Luke tells us, and then they kissed Paul. This was their practice. Maybe today it's a hug. Maybe it's a handshake. Today, in our society, in our culture, a holy handshake, a holy hug. Some are uncomfortable with hugs, we understand. Um, but again, if, if some have their way today, we wouldn't even look at each other. We'd look at someone and run. So we have to remember that even in biblical times, when they didn't have the science and medicine we have today, they kissed each other. And let's not get rid of that. At least the greeting part. Maybe not the wet kisses. Unless you're from the Middle East. 
And so they had that as well. They were a united group. And the last thing we see then, you've already seen this no doubt, is that they were a prolific or fruitful group. Not every church is, but the church of Jesus Christ can be and should be a prolific group of Christians. Notice the language throughout. Phoebe is the servant. She's a helper. In verse 6, there's Mary, a woman, who labored much. In the Greek, it really means to the point of exhaustion. So I don't know what she was doing. Maybe she cooked. Maybe she cleaned. Maybe she helped to organize the assembling of the saints. Maybe she did secretarial work for Paul. I don't know. But she served to the point of exhaustion. There's Urbanus in verse 9, a fellow worker. Those in verse 12 who labored in the Lord, who labored much in the Lord. And so you guys who set up every Sunday and break down every Sunday night, you're in good company. You ladies who cook meals, who enable your husband to invite people over, you invite people over, you're in good company. Because there's much labor. The work of the kingdom is work. But it should be joyful work. And Paul says, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. He tells us to persevere knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15 or 16. And so they were a diligent bunch. But not only that, there's Priscilla and Aquila. And I've, I've read about them in the New Testament many times. But I don't know if you've ever studied them. This is quite interesting. What a challenge. This is husband and wife, by the way. Not sisters. Priscilla, Prisca, and Aquila. Aquila's the husband. What a challenge they are to married couples, to Christians in general. Um, In AD 49, Claudius of Rome put out an edict and basically banned Jewish people from that area. So they had to go elsewhere. That's cruel, we know. But it happened. And so Priscilla and Aquila evidently ended up in Corinth, where they met the Apostle Paul. They were tent makers. So they worked with Paul and they made tents. And uh, eventually, well, you'll recall as well, they're the same couple that tag-teamed Apollos and showed him the better way. Apollos was one of the great preachers of the early church, but he didn't have all of the info of the gospel. They showed him the true way, and he became this this great uh, preacher. And so they, they moved from Corinth back, well, not back, but to Ephesus with the Apostle Paul when he went. So they're next to him there. And uh, think about this. It was, it was later that they went back to Rome once they were able to go back. So when you look at the Scriptures, their names are always mentioned together. They were by each other's side. They served the kingdom of Christ together. They went through trials together. They were forced to leave their home in Rome. Um, they were partner, partners with the Apostle Paul. They were able to teach the preacher Apollos. So they knew their Bible And wherever they went, they opened their hearts and their home to the saints. 1 Corinthians 16, 19 in our text, 16, 5. And uh, Paul even says they risked their necks for him in some way. We don't know exactly how. They risked 
their lives for Paul. They knew that Paul's work was important. And they thought so much of that gospel that he preached and taught and wrote about that they were willing to lay down their lives for the brethren. And so what a challenge if you're single, if you're married, to follow their sacrificial, godly, Christ-like example. And so this church, they had accomplished much. And there's Paul who mentions himself here in the text. And uh, we know that he covered thousands of miles in his missionary journeys on foot over the years. And so when you think about uh, Paul's leadership and when you think about um, this early Christian church and all the things that they accomplished, how were they able to do this and keep the peace and have unity and be so productive? That's the question. I mean, they were exercising their gifts that the Lord had given them. Well, Paul says elsewhere, In Romans, he says that the exercise of spiritual gifts is the manifestation of the Spirit. Romans 12.8. So my point is that they were able to do this through the Spirit who is the Spirit of Christ. Not in their own strength, but they had spent time with the Lord after being converted, of course, growing in their faith. And what they did, they did unto the Lord. And when they saw a brother or sister, they didn't look at him or her as just a person in the same city. No, they're part of the family and kingdom of God. Jesus says, how you treat them is how you treat me. And they were empowered to love each other and treat each other in this way by the Spirit. And in Ephesians 4, 3, Paul talks about the bond and the unity of the Spirit that we are called to keep in the body of Christ. And so we see all of these things and they lead us to, they teach us to endeavor to keep that bond of peace. When I was in seminary, Morton Smith, Dr. Smith, he used to say, the church is where it's at. Meaning that the church is the only organization for which the Lord Jesus Christ has ever died to save It's only in the church of Jesus Christ that you get the means of grace and the fellowship of believers. And so pour your life into the church if you're going to be a minister of the gospel. And that's true, isn't it? We see that here. I could say much more of it. At this point, I would just say, love Christ. Love His church. Amen. Lord, we thank You for the example of the saints we have here. We pray that You would call us, or rather enable us, uh, to love each other more, to love You more. As the old song says, more love to Thee, O Christ, more love to Thee. And we pray that we would be uh, that, that living temple of Your Spirit, serving one another, being volunteers of You. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.